0: Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 303, Eric Bloodaxe. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. And you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to El Hannon, Sue, and Taro for signing up already. We can probably assume that Harald Fairhair, the king of Norway, had fantastic hair. I'm sure that it was either big or really long or super glossy, and it was almost definitely blonde. But that wasn't the only trait that he was known for. King Harald Fairhair was also known for getting around and around. According to records, he had as many as 20 sons. 20?! Now for a king, that particular kind of accomplishment is a double-edged sword, because while you have an heir and a whole bunch of spares, you also have a lot of sons who aren't likely to inherit anything, and they know it. And we're talking about Scandinavia in the Middle Ages. This isn't the Brady Bunch. A royal house populated by about 20 sons wouldn't just be musky, it would be a snake pit of ruthless power politics. Basically, it would be a really weird way to grow up for almost everyone involved. Almost everyone. But there was one son who wasn't. Hakon. Because he was being fostered in the court of Athelstan. And as a consequence, Hakon was spared having to go to the Scandinavian Royal Hunger Games daycare. But the other 19 or so sons had to remain close to home. And so they likely spent their young lives jockeying for a place of power. And one of these sons was named Eric. Now, according to the sagas, Eric was his father's favorite. But with so many rivals for the throne, you weren't guaranteed to inherit just because you're a dad's special little boy. If you wanted to rule, you needed to show some initiative. And Eric had initiative in spades. He also had an axe. And one by one, his brothers started meeting untimely ends. In the Latin texts, He's referred to as Fratris Interfactor, the brother killer. In the Norse sagas, he's just known as Eric Bloodaxe. But while he might not have been popular with his brothers, Eric still did have a partner in crime. His rise to infamy was accompanied by his wife, a noblewoman named Gunnhild. Now Gunnhild's background is slightly unclear. Some sources claim that she was the child of King Gorm the Old of Denmark. Others claim that she was part of another dynasty entirely. But whatever her parentage, they tend to agree that she was of noble blood. But they don't stop there. These records and sagas also mention that she was, for lack of a better term, super hot. And lusty. And also a witch. And sure, I mean, if you're gonna be a witch, you might as well be a sexy witch, right? And actually, in true witch fashion she was rumored to take an active hand in the slaying of her husband's kin. Because here's the thing about Gunnhild. She wasn't just known for being the hot one in Hocus Pocus. We're also told that she was cunning and impossibly powerful. For example, one of Eric's brothers, Hafdan Haraldsson, was a popular contender for the throne of Norway. And as such, he was very much an obstacle between Eric and his quest for power. That is until he somehow ended up drinking a whole bunch of poison, like you do, and then suddenly, Halfdan Haraldsson wasn't a problem. Gunnhild was also credited with goading several of Eric's other brothers into fighting him, in battles that each of them ended up losing. Between Eric and Gunnhild, Norse heirs to the throne started dropping like flies. But, before we get too attached to this version of the story, keep one thing in mind. The sagas are told from the perspective that Eric Bloodaxe is kind of the hero. But even with that pivot point, it's pretty clear that Eric was doing some really shady shit. I mean, it's pretty hard to paint kinsling in a positive light. So, facing off with that, what do the medieval writers do? They say it's obviously his wife's fault. And that she's a witch. And also kind of slutty, I guess. If they were writing in 2019, they probably also would have accused her of having vocal fry and ruining video games. So the story of Gunnhild might be the remnants of a misogynistic fig leaf for Eric's fratricidal rise to power. But, that being said, sometimes people do find their match. So it's also possible that Eric was a ruthless bastard who ended up marrying another ruthless bastard. And this wasn't medieval writers embellishing at all. And instead, Eric and Gunnhild were just the 10th century's hottest kinslaying power couple. Whatever the case, Eric's list of rivals were rapidly dwindling. Which means these two must have been pretty busy. I mean, he started with about 20 brothers. But by the time that his father walked across the Rainbow Bridge to Valhalla, Eric's path to the throne was pretty much clear. It turns out, magic sex witches don't marry slackers. And so now eric would be known as king eric Bloodaxe. but here's the thing i know it's hard to believe this today but it turns out that being a brother-slaying axe enthusiast who's married to a seductive potion pusher doesn't make you all that popular and it's crazy right you'd think they would at least liven up a party but the people of norway quickly grew tired of eric and busty baba yaga and rebellion started to foment And this might have happened because Eric was seeking out other potential threats to his reign once he'd already run through all his brothers. And then he was dealing with them with his trusty axe. And fair enough, if you're morally flexible enough to kill your brother, are you really going to hesitate to kill some noble from three towns over? So Eric's reign started to look like tyranny. And that's actually fairly impressive. Medieval Scandinavia was not some free and open meritocracy with a robust welfare system and environmentally friendly bicycle shares. These were slavers with a justice system that centered on ritual combat. But even then, the subjects of Eric Bloodaxe were going, Whoa, I think this guy's going too far. And so the Norse were ready for a change. And as luck would have it, Hakon was ready to come home. And on his return, the nobility flocked to Hakon's banner. And after a very brief civil war, Hakon was crowned king. And here's where I feel like we're missing part of the story. We have a regime change where the previous king was a bloodthirsty, kinslaying tyrant who was dethroned by one of his only remaining brothers. And yet he doesn't die. He didn't die in battle, nor was he captured and executed. He wasn't even captured and held in Viking prison. Instead, Eric and boss witch Gunnhild fled south to Orkney. Safely. There's something missing in that story. But, for as bad as things looked for Eric, this was still Eric Bloodaxe. And despite managing to piss off nearly everyone in Norway, he wasn't out of the fight just yet. Because he knew how to build himself an army. There's a poem that survives about Eric Bloodaxe. And in it, Egil Skala Grimson praises the ousted king. Quote, The breaker of arm fire offers arm gems. The ring breaker will not praise the tardy handing out of treasure. The pebbles of the hawk beach are highly alienable to him. The lot of men are happy about the meal of frothy. End quote. What the poem is saying here is that Eric was a man who could break warriors but he was also incredibly generous. And as king, Eric was quick to hand out treasure and even arm rings to his followers. And this made warriors happy to follow him and continue fighting for him. And of course it would. Scandinavian warriors were less like enlisted soldiers and more like independent contractors. These guys chose for themselves who they would fight for and follow. And the arm rings in Scandinavian culture were sort of like the Anglo-Saxon sword rings they signified an honorable bond between leader and warrior. If you received the gift of an armoring, you and the leader were now bonded. In exchange for his protection and favor, you knew that you owed a gift in return. Namely, your fighting abilities in the field. And Eric apparently was able to form these bonds quickly and maintain them, likely by supplying a steady stream of plundered loot. And interestingly, This was a characteristic that was also shared by Gunnhild, who apparently traveled alongside Eric this entire time. Because all magical, lascivious rumors about her aside, she was also known for being incredibly generous to those she favored, and impossibly cruel to those she didn't. So we've got a sexy, generous power couple known for magic and murder, and they're hanging out in Orkney with nothing to do other than gather supporters. What could go wrong? And that is how in 947 or 948, Eric Bloodaxe left Orkney with an army, and he invaded Northumbria. And as you know from the last episode, the Lords of Jorvik pretty much threw the crown at him. So, without much effort, this king turned Vikinger was now a king again. And I find it fascinating that Northumbria thought that this was the guy for them. I mean, here we have a blood drenched pagan and a boss witch neither of whom had any legitimate claim to the throne. And yet their rule was still apparently preferable to King Edred. But that being said, this probably wasn't a personal thing against Edred specifically. Northumbria doesn't seem to have liked any of the line of Alfred. Athelflaed got a little traction with them, but after her death, the region was a continual headache for Edward, Edmund, and Athelstan. Oh, and speaking of Athelstan, an alternate version of Egil's saga mentions that Athelstan actually gave Jorvik to this fratricidal maniac in order to create a bulwark against the Scots. But that story is, in a word, bullshit. There's no indication that Eric and Athelstan ever met. No contemporary record. And Eric never shows up during the reign of Athelstan, nor during even the reign of his successor, Edmund. Furthermore, after Brunnenburg, the Scots really weren't all that much of a problem. And the English kings have been doing a rather good job of maintaining an alliance there. So they really didn't need a bulwark. Especially a bulwark consisting of a stabby pagan dude and the medieval version of that goth chick from the craft. So I'm pretty sure that someone was taking artistic license here. But that fan fiction aside, in the year 948, we have King Eric Bloodaxe and Queen Gunnhild of Jorvik. And the sagas speak of how Jorvik was a prosperous kingdom. Which meant... That they would now have to decide how to handle that prosperity. And that's not an easy question, considering the way he acquired the kingdom. This really wasn't a conquest. The lords sided with him. But, at the same time, he still did have warriors to pay. And that would have posed a unique problem. On the one hand, Eric could seize treasure and lands from the lords, and distribute it to his army. An army that he needed to maintain his hold on the throne. But if he did that, he'd run the risk of losing the support of the lords of Jorvik, lords who he needed the support of to maintain his hold on the throne. Kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of situation. And this is probably why he decided to choose door number three. And we hear of him raiding Scotland and along the Irish Sea. Because those warriors really did need to be paid. So that was kind of a tricky first test for King Eric. But at the same time, his rival... King Edred was watching a nightmare unspool before him. In previous decades, Edred's brother, Athelstan, had carefully built up a web of allies for the newly formed Kingdom of England. After he died, Edmund and later Edred had done their best to maintain and expand that network. But one by one, these allies were dropping off. And by the time we get to this point in Edred's reign, the line had gone dead. Not even Scotland was picking up. And that was a bad sign. Because you might remember that King Edmund had conquered Strathclyde and deposed King Diffenwall and then handed those lands over to King Malcolm of Scotland on the agreement that Scotland would come when called. And this was definitely a situation where England could use some support. But Malcolm and his Scots were nowhere to be seen. Now it's possible that this is because Malcolm had his hands full. Having Eric Bloodaxe and his ships raiding along the coast of Scotland was no doubt causing all manner of problems for the Scottish king. But beyond that, it looks like he was having some difficulty holding on to his own lands. Because at the same time as all of this, in 948, King Diffinwall of Strathclyde reappears in the record as the king of the independent kingdom of Strathclyde. Somehow, Malcolm had lost Strathclyde and the old dynasty reasserted itself. Edred was not going to get any support from Scotland in his attempts to reclaim Yorvik. Similarly, King Louis of France and King Otto of Germany had united and launched a war against King Hugh the Great, for reasons that are actually quite complicated, but basically can be boiled down to the Frankish nobility don't get along with anyone and get bored when they're not fighting. But as a consequence of this, whatever affection that Louis had for his foster brother Edred would have to be sent in card form, not in the form of troops or ships. King Edred was on his own. If he wanted to deal with this kinslaying usurper and his slinky sorceress, he'd have to do it himself. And so, in 948, he called the third. And given that his stomach was playing hell with him, he probably also moved his diet over to bland foods, just to be safe. And while the king was stashing away barrels of royal broth, warbands from all over the kingdom were answering the call. They assembled at the agreed-upon meeting place, and when the order was given they marched north. As the fyrd crossed the border, it doesn't look like they encountered any resistance. Eric apparently wasn't ready for the advance, and he must have retreated behind his walls. So the southern army pressed on, until they reached Ripon. And there, they burned the minster to the ground. And that's a strange note in the record. Why would a Christian English king march into pagan-controlled Northumbria and burned down a Christian minster. Well, likely because it was one of Archbishop Wolfstan's minsters. King Edred was probably giving the clergy an object lesson in the dangers of disloyalty. And once he was done teaching them, the king ordered his forces to march back south, back to England. I don't know why he stopped at Ripon. Maybe his stomach was acting up. Or maybe he felt he made his point. Whatever it was, with the minster ablaze, the English army began its march home and Eric saw his opportunity. The march would probably take a day or two. And this English king was so confident in his strength that he was arrogantly marching along the old Roman road. And that meant that Eric knew exactly where Edred was and where he was going. And so he could strike at a place and time of his own choosing. Now, the road back from Ripon was on fairly open terrain for about a day or so's march, which meant that there wouldn't be all that much of an advantage to strike there. But after that, it passed through Castleford. And at Castleford, there was a river. And river crossings are moments of extreme danger for an army, especially an army that relies so heavily on organized infantry and shield walls. Because to cross it, they would have to spread out. And that meant that their primary strength the shield wall, would be lost. So that's where Eric led his forces. But it took him a while to get them all together. And while it was at his advantage that the journey would take a day or so for the English to arrive at Castleford, it also meant that it was a long journey for his army too. And if they didn't hurry, they'd miss their chance. But as soon as he had his men gathered, Eric rushed behind King Edred and his army. We don't know if he used horses or just a force march to close the distance. Maybe he just lucked out and the English army was sufficiently slowed down by organizing the river crossing. However, he did it. At Castleford, Eric and his army caught up with the English. And as predicted, the English forces were spread out. And from the sound of the record, large portions of the English army were also already across the river, which would have effectively taken them out of the battle. Crossing back would have put them in just as much danger as crossing in the first place. So that meant that the English army's numbers were already diminished. And as they were disorganized from the crossing, they were also in serious danger of being overwhelmed. As a result, all they could do now is rush across as quick as possible before the warriors of Jorvik could reach them. And seeing this chaos in front of him would have been exactly what Eric wanted. And he ordered the advance. But there was a problem. King Edred and his commanders knew full well how dangerous river crossings were, and so they had scouts and a rearguard stationed for precisely this sort of situation. And as the Anglo Danish force charged forward, the English rearguard activated. And they had one job they had to hold the line against the forces of Jorvik long enough for the king and the rest of his army to make the crossing. It was a dangerous task as they would have to hold off all of what Jorvik had to throw at them. It was also suicide. By holding off Bloodaxe and his men, they were ensuring that they had no safe path of retreat, and no one could come save them. We aren't told the precise details of this fight, nor the names of who made up the rearguard. But due to the importance of this task and what was required of them, it's likely that this detachment consisted of some of King Edred's bravest veteran warriors and as they heard the sound of their comrades desperately trying to complete the crossing behind them, the rearguard lined up, locked their shields, and prepared for the onslaught. They would have been badly outnumbered. Their line was likely thin, making each warrior crucial for their defense. They also would have been unable to maneuver, being that their battlefield had to be between Eric and the king. If that meant fighting on muddy, uneven ground, so be it. Furthermore, Due to the disparate numbers involved, it's likely they were quickly enveloped and pressed against the banks of the river. What followed would have been a brutal, bloody business, beginning first with shield wall combat and eventually, after too many warriors fell, devolving into open melee. It would have been horrible. But all the while, more and more of the English army crossed. And that meant the defensive line could shrink. The trouble, though, was that as the battle raged, there were also fewer men to fill that defensive line. They were losing. But all they needed to do was hold out long enough for the army to cross. And then finally, finally, Edred and the army was safe across the river. But not before the rear guard, which had fought so selflessly, had been defeated in the process. And standing on the south side of the river... King Edred looked on with horror. Then that horror turned to rage. He wasn't even supposed to be here. None of this would have happened were it not for Eric and these disloyal Northumbrian lords. But here he was, having to lead a campaign when he'd much rather be at home, probably tending to his stomach pains. This was all Eric's fault. Furthermore, while they had burned down Ripon, those monks had it coming. And if this pagan king really had a problem with that, he could have faced him in the field like a monarch should. But instead, what did he do? This pagan decided to lay an ambush like a common bandit, and then he killed some of Edred's best men. But while they did manage to kill the rearguard, that plan had clearly failed, because the rest of the army made it across. And what remained was vast, far more than what Jorvik can muster. And while their first trip to Northumbria had been relatively well-behaved, restricting their wrath just to Ripon, Eric had violated honorable combat. So now everything had changed. We're told that in response to this attack, King Edred, quote, wanted to invade again and completely do for the country, end quote, meaning that he wanted to burn the kingdom of Jorvik to the ground. He was threatening total war. And he could do it. Eric Bloodaxe, King of Jorvik, had won the battle, but anyone could see that for all his efforts, all he'd done was take out a single detachment. The rest of the army was still standing, and now they're even more pissed than before. I can only imagine the level of Byer's remorse that the Lords of Jorvik were feeling at this moment. They had thrown everything they had behind this guy and his Slytherin wife, and man, it was not going too well. And that regret only heightened when a messenger arrived, bearing word from the English king. He said that King Edred would offer them a choice. They could abandon Eric Bloodaxe, or he would burn their country to the ground. Moments later, Eric must have had a nasty sense of deja vu, as his lords all turned on him and turfed him out of the kingdom. But King Edred of England wasn't done yet. He'd lost a lot of good men today. And the lords of Jorvik would have to compensate him for that loss. And the lords, facing the threat of total annihilation, happily agreed to that demand. England was triumphant. And more importantly, it was unified again. The dream that had motivated his dynasty for generations was still alive. And so King Edric called off his campaign, and he set about the important work of rebuilding. The word of these things travels fast. And across the Irish Sea, in Dublin, King Olaf Sitriksen was preparing his ships. It was time to take back his father's lands. Son of a Give me a drink. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at the British History Podcast at gmail.com. We're also on Reddit, Twitter, pretty much everywhere. And you can find links to all of those sites in the community section of the British History